Hello, everyone. So good to see all of you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I uh, had the privilege of serving a, a church in um, Sandpoint the last uh, two Sundays. Um, and uh, uh, man, what a beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, there were moose in the yard of the house I was staying at every day, which I thought only happens in Alaska. Uh, but it, and I guess you're not supposed to stand a few feet from a mother moose with her babies. I, I posted something and they're like, dude, get out of there. What are you doing? <laughs> she was nice. Uh, she did not attack me. Um, hey, we're going to be, uh, begin a, um, a new series today. Uh, just so you guys know too, I'm, I'm going to be, um, I'm, I'm back. My travel is done. The sabbatical is over. Uh, and, and you will be seeing and hearing from me a lot more. Um, and I'm excited to just settle in and uh, participate in this lovely community that, man, I've been a part of now for 13 and a half years. So uh, really grateful to be back, and Darcy and I are excited to just plug in and, and resettle and connect uh, with many of you. Some of you uh, probably are new uh, while I was gone. I started coming to Dwarf Open, have no idea who I am. Uh, so I'd love to meet you. My name's Josh. <laughs> it's great to be here. Uh, we're going to start a series in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to kind of break it up into three sections. This first section is just going to be chapter 5, and we'll be, it'll take us all the way into December. Um, and the, the series is called The Kingdom of Grace. And, and really what I want us to do is to look at the Sermon on the Mount and interpret it through the lens of the gospel. I would argue that the Sermon on the Mount is actually uh, one of the most... Um, uh, the most misunderstood teachings in scripture. There's a really famous book uh, written by Leo Tolstoy, uh, the Russian writer who wrote uh, War and Peace. He wrote uh, a manifesto on the Sermon on the Mount and his desire was to, uh, to put forth what he considered to be the true gospel. And it was essentially like, how does one live out the Sermon on the Mount? Let's get rid of the miraculous. Let's get rid of the divine elements. Kind of the kingdom is within you, the divine qualities within you. And the Sermon on the Mount became the perfect utopian ideal. If everybody turned the other cheek, there would be no cheeks to slap, right? And so he puts forth a kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps theology and I would argue his approach to the Sermon on the Mount, which still haunts the church today, uh, is, is the very thing that will dismantle a person's faith uh, faster than you can even try to apply a single uh, call to obedience in any area of the ethics from which Jesus puts forth within this powerful teaching. And so what I want us to consider is how do we interpret the Sermon on the Mount then? Is it, is it is it not meant to be taken literally? Um, is it hyperbolic? Uh, is, it, is it purely spiritual with no impact upon the physical world? How should we take it? And I think we should take it uh, as it's told. It's meant to be taken seriously. Uh, it's, it's meant to be listened. We should be thinking about who's actually speaking it. It's about Christ's central concern, which is the kingdom of God and our awareness of that kingdom. Uh, but most importantly, when we interpret it through the lens of the gospel, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension and the sending of his spirit, we should keep in mind that the key to its proper interpretation is Christ is the fulfillment of the law. In Romans it says he is the end of the law. And if we don't keep that in mind, what we have when we read the Sermon on the Mount is a whole new law that's actually even harder to keep than the original law because Jesus continually pushes into the heart of things. And what he's doing throughout the Sermon on the Mount is he is giving us the ethics of the kingdom. He's giving us the very essence of God's nature and character and he's showing us how far short we come of that nature. So when Jesus says, Whoever looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery with her in his heart. This isn't a teaching that tells you what kind of looks are adulterous. What he's actually saying is everybody's an adulterer. When he says, you've heard it said you shall not commit murder. 
But I tell you, whoever is angry with his brother or sister has committed murder. Well, we're in big trouble there, aren't we? That means that we're committing murder every day. So what is he saying then? That disciples of him are forgiven adulterers, forgiven murderers. And what we find is that the the Sermon on the Mount begins to become fulfilled in our lives only as we surrender to the very one who defines the kingdom himself, which is the king. Jesus' presence in our lives is what brings the kingdom. Uh, And our ability to begin to see his kingdom around us, within us, uh, as we surrender to him is, is the key to understanding. But we're going to dig deeper into these things because we have to ask the question, how do these things practically impact our lives? Because so many people look to the church and they want to know, what is it about Jesus? Why would I want to believe in this? What, what would there be about our lives that would actually cause someone to say, I need what you have? And if, it, if our Christian faith doesn't impact the way that we live, then what are we doing But I think the danger is is that we can focus so much on how we live that we forget the one that we're living for. And I think that this is why I want us to interpret it very carefully through through a right understanding of the gospel. That we are, as it says in Psalm 14, if I was to quote from Eugene Peterson's The Message, when it says that God looks down from heaven to see if there is any man, any woman who isn't stupid. And he comes up with a string of zeros. The blessing lies on the zero, as we will consider today. So today we're just going to consider the first three verses of Matthew 5 and the final verse of Matthew 5. So the first word that Jesus speaks uh, in the Sermon on the Mount is verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last word that Jesus speaks in Matthew 5, the first is a blessing, the last is a command. Therefore, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And this opens up the can of worms that reveals how paradoxical the teachings of Christ are indeed. P.T. Forsyth, the great Scottish theologian of the cross, wrote, you do not understand Christ until you understand his cross. So as we are interpreting the Sermon on the Mount, we must interpret it through the lens of the cross. This is why Paul said, we preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. He isn't saying every sermon is about the cross. He's saying every sermon, everything that we say about Jesus is informed by what happened at Calvary. What Greater glory is there than God putting his praise, his applause upon our lives. I've entitled this message today, The Weight of Glory. And the weight of glory is felt when we understand the gospel and what Christ has accomplished for us, for everything that needs to be done has already been done in him. And we take that lens and we apply it to the Sermon on the Mount and something really beautiful begins to happen. Because what we begin to see is that the Christian life is not about arriving. It's about knowing him. It's about knowing him. C.S. Lewis once said, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father in his son, it seems impossible. A weight of burden, of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain. This weight of glory is what is felt. God's blessing upon those who have done nothing to earn it, but he chooses to love us in our sin. And his holiness means he is not content to leave us there. And as we move into this first beatitude, um, my prayer is that we begin to see how beautiful the gospel is. So there are three questions that I'm going to ask today, and that is, who is Jesus teaching? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And then finally, what does it mean to be perfect? And so let's begin with this question of who is Jesus teaching? It says in verse, verse 1, it says, at verse 1 and 2 actually, seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now, there is a lot of confusion around the Sermon on the Mount because of the the general belief that Jesus 
teaching is, is addressing the, the crowds as a whole. But if you know anything about, about the history of, of, of uh, oratory uh, skills, you don't go up on top of a mountain to, to speak to a, to a crowd. Amphitheaters were well known at that time. The speaker speaks from below the crowd. That's not how sound travels. Secondly, you don't sit down <laughs> on top of a mountain to profess a teaching to a large group of people. The actual way that we should look at this is, is unique, that Jesus sees the crowd and does what he often does, which is he tries to get away from the crowd. He moves up onto the, onto the mountain, um, and it says, when he is seated, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying. Well, this is why we often interpret it that it's actually a teaching in the crowd, is because the last verse in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verses 28 to 29, says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not, and not as the scribes. So what is it? Is he teaching the disciples, or is he teaching the crowds? And I would say yes. But actually, it's, it's more specific. He's teaching his disciples. He's giving to his disciples, to those, and we have to define what the word disciple is. A disciple is one who is called by Jesus and has cut, cut ties with their old life. The old has passed away, the new has come. They have left all to follow him. They understand who their Lord is, and it is no longer the Lord of their own making, whether it's themselves or their jobs or their, their families. Their Lord is King Jesus. The disciple is one who, who orients their entire life around the person of Jesus. They hear his voice and they follow him. It doesn't mean that we don't have interests anymore. It doesn't mean that we don't have unique temperaments. Uh, it doesn't mean that if you give your life to Jesus as Lord, that you become a part of some weird, like the Borg. This isn't the loss of identity, it's the birth of what God intended you to be when he created you. It's the belief that you and I are made in the image of God, and the gospel, the restoration that happens when we put our faith in Christ, is that we die to the lie of what God never intended, and we are born again into this new identity. This is why Jesus said, unless you are born again, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, which is very fascinating because he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No person will ask Jesus to save them if they don't think they need to be saved. And there is no experiencing of the kingdom, which is essentially Christ's presence every moment of every day. And this is why we have to ask ourselves when it comes to what we think of, when we think of what it means to be a Christian, is how often it is a religious answer. It's not about a God that we know, it's about things that we do for a God that we've never met. And that's deeply problematic. What Jesus is doing here is he is teaching his disciples, but what is so powerful about this text is I think this gives us a picture of the church. The church is made up of a community of people who have gathered around the presence of the living Christ. You didn't come to hear about Jesus, you came to meet with him. My prayer is that his presence is felt and we need to have a greater hunger, a greater desire, a greater expectancy. If I could, if I could uh, take anything that I have learned from my more charismatic brothers and sisters is I, I love the expectancy within charismatic circles. Now. I can, I can critique anything like anyone because everything has its, has its underbelly uh, and this is why we should always tread carefully when we bring out criticisms because everything we do probably can be criticized somewhere. And that yes, there are more extreme forms where the charismatic can be so focused on the emotional experience that truth can take a, take a back seat. But that does not mean that we should not desire to meet with God that we should be a church that is marked by a balance of word and spirit. And the spirit's, the spirit's work in our lives is to bring about an awareness of a God who is not detached or distant, but a God who is present. So disciples are those that have gathered around Jesus. 
just like we have at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. But look what happens when people actually gather around the living Christ. What's happening at the end of the teaching? The crowds have gathered around the disciples. When Jesus is lifted up, this is one of my great arguments for why church matters. In a time where people are saying, I love Jesus, but I really don't want anything to do with the church any longer. The church is on a massive decline, especially since COVID. It's almost like it solidified an excuse to say, I don't need church. It's actually, it's too much work. I've got kids. I've got too many things to do. My life is already so busy. There are already so many voices telling me what to do. I'm just going to, my spiritual path is my own. I will follow Jesus in my own way. I will define my own terms. But once again, Now you are actually moving outside of the definition of what it means to be a disciple because you are saying you are the one who has the right to define what it means to follow Jesus rather than Jesus himself. Because Jesus himself is the one who established the church. And it also gives us a picture of what the purpose of the church is. The purpose of the church is not personal navel-gazing or self-discovery. This is not a self-help club. This is a I-need-help club. And unless Jesus intervenes, this is, a, this is an AA meeting. This is, this is the, I'm an alcoholic, I haven't had a drink for it. And you're like, we're so glad you're here, Josh. And, and this is a safe place to confess our brokenness to one another. And we gather around the hope that is Christ in the middle, infusing all of us with his gracious love. His love that is without contingency, where we're not being judged by one another, but we recognize how broken we are. And and because we know how broken we are, we have gratitude that God has so graciously intervened into our lives that it gives us a gentleness when we meet other broken people. All the church is, is beggars telling other beggars where they can get some bread. That's the beauty of the gospel. But how often have you gone into a church where there is an elevated sense of spiritual worth based upon based upon a moralism that is that is seeped into the community where their their christianity is defined by behavior modification rather than christ's living presence this is why it's so dangerous to turn the sermon in the mount sermon on the mount into just simply things that we do that actually you'll never be able to do, and hence the frustration and the reason that so many people walk away from their faith is because they turn their faith into a bunch of things that they do for a God they don't know. And I think that when we begin to understand that God is with us in spite of us, it should create a gratitude because the the key to the Christian life is is to be vessels by which we receive God's love that on our worst day, he's crazy about us. And when we know that, how much more do we want to help others to understand that they are loved? That it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. That sin is not the little things we do wrong, but that sin is a rebellion against God's rule. This is why it's so dangerous when people start thinking they've spiritually arrived, is that, is that they don't realize that even that thought is actually probably more offensive to God than than the person in the alley shooting up heroin. Because at least they're not thinking they're better than everyone else. And pride, we're told, is an abomination. And yet spiritual pride is one of the things that tends to go unchecked in the church today. In fact, it almost seems to be promoted often because it seems like it's confidence. It fits into our world system and the lens by which we look at things. No. When God's people humbly recognize that without Jesus, they are nothing, and they have received his love, and they are gathered around him, others are drawn in. This is why Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And we need to remember that that drawing does not mean that everybody gets saved. It means that everybody is, Jesus meant what he said. When he's lifted up, people are drawn. But the response is often different. Some people are offended and repelled, some people Repent and receive. It's not an easy thing to hear the words, you cannot save yourself. Your best life is not now. <laughs> you, when we embody the mottos of Nike, just do it. You can do anything you put your mind to. Well, any of us who have lived any amount of time on this earth realize that is just simply not true, is it? 
I saw a comedian recently, it was a really funny um, show, it was this quirky, but this guy, Tim Robinson, in the, the episode, uh, there's a guy trying to get out of a parking lot and he goes to back up and a car pulls up quickly behind him and then it swerves to one side and then the other side. And every time this guy tries to get around him to get out of the parking lot, he can't get out of the parking lot. And then finally he just honks and he's, he's swearing at the, the driver in front of him. And Tim Robinson, the, the main comedian, sticks his head out the window and he's like, he looks all like disturbed. And he's like, and the guy goes, what is your deal? Do you not know how to drive? And Tim Robinson's like, no, actually I don't know how to drive. And he goes, not everybody knows how to do everything. <laughs> and he goes, what are you talking about? He's like, I don't know how to drive. And he's like, he touches the steering wheel and he screams like it burns him. And he's like, the steering wheel did not burn you. How do you know it didn't burn me? It was, but I loved the, what I loved about it was just the sheer honesty of like a person who's willing to admit that they don't know how to do everything is like, like what? That's the joke in it. That most people actually are way overconfident in their own ability to do anything. And our confidence in our, in our self, in our power, in our, in our intellects, man, all it takes is, you know, 40 years of the challenges of existence to have that knocked out of us pretty quickly. Jesus is speaking to disciples, and disciples are those that recognize that they need help, is essentially what I'm saying. And the crowd is attracted to that humility. And by the end of the sermon, they're around him. This is a beautiful picture of the church. And I, why I believe that the church's primary responsibility is to be a witness to a lost world. Jesus is teaching the lost and the found. And everybody's, everybody's lost here and now. And, and we have the ability to discover that it is us who has been found by him not vice versa, which will help us understand the, the first beatitude. Secondly, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's what I would call the impeded stream. In Matthew chapter five, verse three, the first words that are uttered from his mouth are these words, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you look at Isaiah 61, which is pointing to the Messiah and what the Messiah will bring to the earth. You see Jesus is here declaring essentially that this promise in scripture is arrived. That I am the embodiment of this word. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. It's Dale Bruner who said that Jesus begins significantly not with demands, but with blessings. This already tells us something about Christ, that he blesses before he commands, he helps before he orders. I think the word happy, unfortunately, blessed could be translated happy, but happy is too banal. Um, and blessed, blessed, you know, unless you're a Christian Instagrammer who likes to say hashtag blessed, which I thought would be a really funny lower back tattoo. Um, and I'm willing to give it to anyone that wants it. Um, <laughs> we need to preserve that moment in history, cultural history. Hashtag blessed. Like, what does that mean? Oh, it was a thing from when I was young. My pastor gave it to me. <laughs> I like being that guy. Um, <laughs> but blessed can sound too hyper-spiritual. It's not like a word that the average person outside of the church use. Like, I'm blessed. How are you? I'm blessed. Um, so what, what, is, what is he really saying here? It, it can't just be happy. Happy is the poor, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of, of God. No, no, it's, it's, it's something deeper. I think that blessed a way that you could interpret, and I agree with, with Bruner on this, you could say, I am with the poor in spirit. I am with the poor in spirit. I am with those who mourn. I am with the meek. I am with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. One of the most essential aspects of the gospel is it proclaims over a lost humanity that God is for us that he is with us, 
that he will never leave us nor forsake us. The poor in spirit, it doesn't say those who understand that they're poor in spirit. We want to add that to it. We, we feel like it's some sort of, we, we add some kind of work to it. Like you have to, you know, in, in classic like Puritan writing, the poor in spirit is, a, is, a, is you know, a brokenness over sin and it's, a, it's an awareness of one's uh, spiritual impotence. And, and unless there's legitimate mourning and, and um, brokenness over your own sinfulness, it's that kind of classic reform saying of like, the, you know, I'm just a worm. And, and there's, you know, this isn't about like some sort of masochistic self, you know, deprecating reality. In fact, it doesn't say that at all. It doesn't say blessed are those who know they're poor in spirit. It says the blessing is, is that I have come down to a world that is poor in spirit. And where I am, my kingdom is. Now, he does connect it to something that is profound. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what he is saying is that there isn't anyone that enters into the kingdom of heaven that does not become aware of their spiritual poverty and accepts their need for me. And what I believe is happening here is this is not to diminish the... This is not to say that you can intellectually arrive at your own spiritual poverty um, and reach out for God. I agree with Luther fully when it comes to the bondage of the will. People ask me if I believe in free will, and I say, well, I believe in, uh, I believe in freedom in what we, do, uh, what we do horizontally, but not what we do vertically. I think that our attempts to build to the heavens, the Tower of Babel continues to plague human civilization. We are always trying to reach God in our own efforts. This is latter theology. It's what damns us. It's what we turn the Sermon on the Mount into. Um, and we cannot survive that kind of approach to life because we can never get to God. And why are we trying to get to a God who has already come down to us? No, the bondage of the will is this, is that sin has made it impossible for us to reach for God, even desire God, apart from God's gracious intervention. And that intervention is, is I always say that people will say, well, tell me how that works. God's God's part, my part. I always say God did his part, the saving. I did my part, the sinning. And he illuminated my eyes. It doesn't matter how much truth is spoken, how much light is spoke, how much light comes into a room if you're blind. And unless Jesus gives us vision, we can't respond to a God that we don't actually know is there. And when you start feeling that sense that God is there, God is in this place and I didn't know it, I promise you that Jesus meant what he said when he said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And so that there is a response to a divine intervention. This, what, what this tells us is the gospel is not about us climbing up to God, but it's down to earth. God has come down into the middle of human brokenness. And it is there that people find the freedom and the kingdom. This is why he said to the Pharisees and sages, hey, listen, the kingdom of God is within you. I think that, that everything has written in it, the, the law, the law of God is written upon the fabric of creation itself. And we can either surrender to the God who gave that law or we can be crushed by the law that we can't keep. And this is why we turn to Jesus who is the fulfillment of that law. Now, this poverty of spirit, when we think of this blessing, I am with those, I am with those who are broken, who are blind, who are bound. I love this because this is good news. This is why the gospel always requires a bit of a bottoming out. It's one of the reasons why it can be so difficult for those that have grown up in the church and have been Christians their whole lives and they've never come, into, come to terms with what Jesus has actually saved them from. And I think that it's, it's, it's telling that the majority of people that are walking away from the church today are not those that, have, that were radically saved in like the depths of sin. It's those that have walked their whole lives kind of living on the fumes of their parents' faith, they get into the real world and they discover that it's not working for them because they have yet to meet the living Christ for themselves. 
and to understand just how fundamentally broken they are apart from him. You know, it's easy to see the brokenness when it's something really blatant, like I was arrested, you know, someone said, well, the only reason people in prison come to, so many people in prison come to faith is because they've got nowhere to go but up. And I'm like, yes, and your point is. <laughs> no alcoholic looks for respite from their alcoholism until they've hit the bottom. And a bottoming out is, is actually one of the beautiful things. This is the paradoxical nature when Jesus says, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. It's that coming to an end. This is what, what um, David Zoll in his new book, I, I, I love David, he's such a good friend. I really wanna get him out to speak here at Door of Hope sometime. Um, he wrote a book called Seculosity, which I pushed really heavily for several years when it first came out. Uh, and now he's got a new book called Low Anthropology. And, he, and what he argues is that having a low anthropology, uh, which is not believing that, you know, human beings are the greatest things, we're, like we're, we're awesome, we're all, we're all perfect, we just have to tap into that internal God power. He's like, he's like, actually understanding that we're broken is what brings humility in how we deal with one another. He goes, this isn't about self-hatred, it's about a right understanding of how gracious God is to intervene into our lives in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our mistakes. It's what creates a forgiving spirit in the community of God. And I, I really love that, that phrase, low anthropology, um, because A, I just like anything that has, uh, like anything that hints at low brow um, appeals to me for some reason. You know, I was reading through Dallas Willard's um, book, The Divine Conspiracy, which, which was an attempt to actually bring the Sermon on the Mount out of this like purely hypothetical and into the practical. And there's a lot in it actually that's really powerful. I don't agree with everything. I think that there are times where uh, his Stoic philosophy plays into um, his teachings. Uh, he was a Stoic philosopher before he became a Christian in, uh, in that Stoicism is built upon the philosophy, what must I do to live a virtuous life? And so it's very much like doing things better. But there's a lot of profound insights. One of them was on the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the spiritual zero. This is his, his translation of this text. Blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion when the kingdom of heaven comes upon them. Blessed are those that aren't trying to bring anything to the plate because they know they don't have anything to bring. They just need help. It's a beautiful thing. And that's why Anne Lamont's little book, you know, uh, was, what was it? Uh, um, wow, uh, it's like three words that she said should define prayer. It was like, wow, thanks, um, and help. <laughs> I, I think that, that that actually does kind of sum up the Christian experience, doesn't it? You know, I was reading, um, one of my favorite writers is this guy, Christian Wyman. Uh, and he wrote this book on faith and art. He's a man who came to faith um, at almost, I think he was like almost 40 when he came back to his faith. Uh, he's an incredible poet um, and uh, actually is the editor of the, of the oldest publication in America, um, Poetry Magazine, um, for years. And now he's a professor um, of poetry um, for, for Yale Divinity. And he said in his book, um, He Beheld Radical Light, he says, nothing poisons truth so quickly as an assurance that, no, that one has found it. And then he quotes Wendell Berry, the impeded stream is the one that sings. The impeded stream is the one that sings. What a beautiful line. What, essentially what Wyman is saying, like nothing will actually destroy art and creativity, nothing destroys our ability to truly experience life when we actually, like thinking that we have figured everything out. To believe that we are somehow self-sufficient, that we know all things and have all things and can do all things. He's like, that destroys art faster than anything else. It's the recognition of the mystery that life is somehow a gift and at the same time still impossible. And I think that this is the blessing that comes when we have that bottoming out. Rene Girard, the great French philosopher, 
um, who developed a philosophy called mimetic, uh, mimetic theory um, in his great works on the scapegoat mechanism of how the world, the universe, swarms with scapegoats. We're always looking for someone to point our finger at the reason we're in the situation we're in. It wasn't me, um, Adam said to God in the garden. It was the woman you gave me. And Eve said, it wasn't me, it was the serpent who deceived me. And the serpent is the only stinking honest person in that conversation, because he didn't say anything. He was just like, yep, I'm a liar. That's what I do. <laughs> but that tendency, I think that this blessing is the recognition, and I love what Gerard says, he says, to become a Christian is to become aware of oneself as the persecutor of Christ. Wow. That's an intense statement. Isaiah 66, 2 says, all th these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I've thought about that. Do you tremble at his word? God has declared his heart and his mind to us through his word. That humility to recognize, Lord, I need help. It's what Tozer in the pursuit of God referred to as the blessedness of possessing nothing. Because everything that needs to be done has been done in Christ. It is the poverty of spirit and the blessing that comes from our forgiveness in Jesus when we interpret this through the cross. It's not, it's not the possibility of forgiveness. Jesus has dealt with sin once and for all. And that fully dealing with sin once and for all is what brings us to this place where we are forgiven. It doesn't mean that our forgiven sins can't wreak havoc in our lives, they do, because everything has cause and effect, but nothing can separate us from the love of God. It has been dealt with. The victorious Christ has come. This is why the keynote of the kingdom is this. It shoots a hole through the heart of self-sufficiency. You want to ask the question of, am I living in a way that is honoring to Jesus? I'm not going to try to answer that for you by, if I was to quiz you about how often you read your Bible, how often you pray, how much you tithe, where you serve, how often you come to church. Those things should just be the natural outcome of a heart that's overflowing with gratitude. The real definer of what it means to be a Christian is to recognize that it is no longer my life, my possession, and my right to define my own terms, but I surrender to you, King Jesus, wherever you lead me. It's better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud, it says in Proverbs 16, 19. If we want the kingdom of God, we've got to be poor enough to receive it. We cannot be filled until first we become emptied. It's the idea that there is no conversion without conviction. And it's, I think this idea that, that uh, I'm not experiencing Christ or I'm not feeling Christ's presence in me, is it, the real question is, you know, people ask, what does it mean to be spirit-filled? And I always say to Christians who are struggling to experience the life of Jesus in their lives, to really tangibly experience it, is that you need to understand that it's not about getting more of the Spirit, it's about the Spirit having more of you. And sometimes there's so much of us at play, there's always, everything's mixture, guys. You can't escape that. The real question isn't, am I perfect now? The real question is, is am I surrendered to the one who is perfect? so that his life now can be manifested in and through mine. The antithesis of the world's mottos is what we have here. Express yourself, believe in yourself. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their absolute helplessness before God. They become aware of their need for him because God has shown up. He has reached in. He has opened their eyes to his presence. All of us have those moments like Jacob where we awaken out of what seems like a lifetime of sleep, and we say to ourselves, God is in this place and I did not know it. What does it mean to be perfect? Well, what it means to be poor in spirit means 
that we have become able to see that unless God intervenes in my life, I am lost. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is he says, this is the whole reason I came. He says, I have spoken these words to you, that your peace, that you would have peace. And in this world, you're gonna have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. It tells us something really unique that actually our experience of God often comes the most clearly when we're in the most broken state. It's when we're hurting. This is why I, when I talk about theology of suffering, I'm not talking about trying to explain why suffering exists. Instead, what I'm saying is that I don't know why suffering exists. What I do know is that God cares about our suffering and he has played fair and he has entered into it and he has made it his own. And it is because of that that I now know that though there are many things that wound us in life, it is possible for those wounds to be healed. And yes, wounds leave scars, but scars become the testimony that healing is possible. And the power of this poverty of spirit is that when you have been healed by the wounded healer, is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is not just a distant hope, but it's something that's experienced now, and its fulfillment, even greater fulfillment is coming, because what makes heaven heaven is the very presence of Jesus there. And it is Christ who now lives with me. So this helps us understand the mysterious and impossible um, possibility that lies in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Paul gives us some insight into this mysterious passage. By the way, it was this passage that actually led to my own conversion. I read the Sermon on the Mount over and over again, and I remember one day specifically in my apartment in Seattle, Darcy and I had only been married a couple years, and I, was, I had hit the bottom. I'd lost my record deal. I, I, my wife was on the verge of leaving me because she was tired of living with a wannabe rock star and having to take care of everything. She still takes care of everything, but I'm probably more fun to be with now, maybe. Um, and, and, and I just remember this, this point, I'm reading through the Sermon on the Mount and I just, I can't get away from the words of Jesus. And then I come to this verse, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I screamed out in the apartment by myself, that's impossible. And I felt like throwing my Bible across the room, but instead it was like this light, I think a divine intervention. You can't be perfect, that's the whole point. The reason I am saying that is to drive you back to the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize their inability to be perfect and cast themselves on the one who is, which is me. This is why he said, don't think I came to destroy the law or the, pro or the prophets. But he didn't follow that up with, no, I came to double down so that you would try harder. He says, no, I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it, not you. I came to fulfill it on behalf of the poor in spirit. And those that accept their poverty, quit trying to earn something that's already been done for you, are the people that find the kingdom of heaven. And so our perfection, look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is what? Made perfect in what? Weakness. Weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. A lot of people have asked me over the years why I constantly talk about my own brokenness, why I'm so comfortable admitting publicly that I suck so much worse even than I'm aware of. And it's because confession is the key to our sin not having power over us. Our ability to actually move in, in those very small increments toward a greater Christ-likeness does not come from me trying harder, it comes from me receiving more fully each day the living Christ's presence into my life that he would be the one manifesting in and through me in spite of me. This is why I always say Jesus doesn't want this or that part of you, he just wants the whole person. He just wants you and all that comes with that and a lot of bad comes with that and a lot of good. And he says, I love those that recognize that they can't do it on their own. This is why Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Anyone who abides in me and I in them will bear much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. That is not a popular message. Why do people refuse to accept 
God's free, gracious offer of his saving life into their lives. It's not, it's not, God didn't come to get us out of hell, to get us into heaven. He came to bring himself back into the very hearts, into the center of our existence, that we would know him. And that saving relationship brings healing not only to our relationship with God, but to others. And ultimately, and only then, can we begin to even kind of understand ourselves. But we have a world that's reversed the order. We've gotten rid of God, so now we're trying to begin by understanding ourselves first. And then maybe, just maybe, we'll have a little bandwidth to kind of understand another. I just finished this incredible book by Rachel Cusk called Second Place, and she talks about the frustration. This woman is a true agnostic, and she talks about the, she talks honestly about how annoying parenting is. She said, just as I had climbed myself out of the hole of my broken past, I have a daughter and now I've got to climb back into a new hole to protect her from the hole I just climbed out of. And she says, every seat that I have, doesn't matter what seat's available to her, she always wants my seat. And I was like, that's an honest depiction (laughs) of life when you have been taught and believe fundamentally that you are the most important thing in the universe. I love her writing because she's honest, even though I cringed at the statement. Because I was like, what greater joy or purpose? And, And the book is more complex and nuanced than that. Because the character loves her daughter, but at the same time feels like something's been taken from her because of her daughter's existence. And it's true. You can't bring a person into the world and not have to die to yourself if you're actually going to do any kind of reasonable job raising them. Because all the greatest things in life require self-sacrifice. But there is no greater sacrifice than the human ego to surrender to Jesus. And yet it's the key to our experiencing real freedom. It's the key to experiencing what Lewis called the weight of glory. The impossible possibility comes forth when we recognize that it is in our weaknesses that the power of Christ has the ability to manifest through our lives. And this is why I love this passage in closing. Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice this, it's an act that's already taken place and yet it's still working itself out. He has perfected our salvation for all time and it's bringing forth our sanctification as we trust in him so this is where why i wanted to connect these two verses because the blessing is that jesus says i am with the poor in spirit and those that have their poverty illuminated recognize their need have hit that bottom and have cast themselves in dependence upon me discover that the kingdom of heaven is my presence now and forever And the command, be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect, is not you try harder, but it's a passive, it's an active passivity. It's a daily surrender to the one, the only one who actually is perfect on our behalf, working in our imperfection. My daughter, when she was in seventh grade, wrote her her own book called I think perfect imperfect, right? Is that the title? Or imperfect perfect? Imperfect perfect. And I, was, I, I thought, Hattie gets it. The gospel. Imperfect perfect. The perfection of Jesus functioning in our imperfections. His love working through us in spite of us. This is the good news. And this is the heart, I believe, of the Sermon on the Mount. Everything as we move forward is meant to push us back to that first beatitude. And it's connected to the command that is found here in verse 48. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. But I'm poor in spirit, exactly. Trust me, the one who is the fulfillment of the law, the one who died for you and rose from the dead for you and ascended to the right hand of the Father for you and sent his spirit to come and sent my spirit to come and dwell in you. For you, I have come. Christ Jesus does not need us, but he is not content to exist without us. And the question is, is will we submit to him as Lord? Because it all comes down to that. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel. I mean, thank you for just our time together.
today and our desire, Lord, to know you. And I pray that you would forgive us for all the ways that we try to please you, but at the same time refuse to surrender to you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that every day in you is a new day, a new possibility, a new opportunity to experience your grace, for your mercies are new every day. And Lord, as long as there is breath in our lungs, there is hope. And I pray for those that don't know you. Lord, they don't even know what, maybe what to make of the message today. And I just simply pray that they would know by your divine intervention that they are loved with a supernatural love, that you care, and that you want to participate in our lives, and that you want to help us in our brokenness. But you can't save someone that doesn't think they need to be saved. You can't heal someone that doesn't recognize that they're sick. And Lord, I pray for those that maybe still think maybe perfection is possible in their own strength. I pray that they would look to you, the one who is perfect, and just cast themselves in dependence upon you. Jesus, your word says that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. There is nothing we can add to that. There's nothing we can take away from it. And so we simply declare those three words because the entire gospel is contained in them. Jesus is Lord. If you believe that today, say that out loud with me. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.